Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. You can find my weekly fantasy rankings at thefootballgirl.com. Hard to believe it's November already. Boy, remember in the early days of the pandemic, how time seemed to just crawl on its hands and knees? The last two weeks of March felt like two months. And I don't know how you feel, but to me, it seems like time has been flying ever since. Uh, Like Labor Day weekend just happened. I feel that way. Um, But you know what? The speedy passage of time probably is not the worst thing in the world in 2020. I mean, we need to get this godforsaken year over with. Uh, First, though, we do have an election to get through. It's possible you are listening to this episode after Election Day 2020. But many of you are listening to it on Election Day. And if this year hasn't been tumultuous enough, we are undoubtedly going to have the most tumultuous election of our lifetimes. And while this episode is mostly going to be about fantasy football, you know I like to spend a little bit of time talking to my guests about other stuff too. And I'm going to spend some of this week's show talking to my guest about the presidential election. And my guest this week is going to be Pat Doherty of Roto World. So look, consider this sort of a trigger warning. I know that Pat is not a big fan of President Donald J. Trump. And frankly, I am not a Trump fan either. Now, look, if you are a Trump fan, I recommend that you either skip past the part of the show where Pat and I talk about Trump in the election or just skip this episode entirely. And hey, if you're really pissed, the politics are being brought up on what's primarily a fantasy football show. I would completely understand if you wanted to unsubscribe from this podcast and never hear it again. I would even be fine with it if you wanted to tell me on Twitter that you didn't appreciate the political interlude. As long as you do it in a mostly respectful way, totally cool with me. But let me make a couple of quick points. Uh, Number one, My main objective with this show has always been to make it interesting to listeners above all else. I mean, that's part of why I like to go off topic with my guests. They have interesting stories to tell and interesting perspectives, interesting viewpoints on non-fantasy topics. So I think a lot of people are interested in this election, obviously. So I wanted to talk about it with Pat. Number two, I generally do stick to sports. There's not a lot of political stuff on my Twitter timeline, uh, but sometimes I don't want to. And there's nothing really compelling me to stick to sports. I mean, I'm not obligated to do it. You might have noticed that the show does not have any advertisers or sponsors at the moment. So I'm not jeopardizing any income here uh, by not sticking to sports. But I do realize that I run the risk of upsetting some individual listeners, which brings me to my third and final point. All right, look, I do hate Donald Trump, but I know a lot of you who like Donald Trump, uh, a lot of Twitter followers. I don't personally understand it, but I know that's just how it is. And if you're a Trump supporter, just because I hate Trump doesn't mean I hate you. I'm not going to tell you to fuck off or unfollow me. I mean, I know that's how some people feel about it. They want nothing to do with people on the other side. So they unfriend them on Facebook or go out of their way to avoid interacting with them. Like families actually get torn apart over this shit. So I just can't take it that far. I can't bring myself to hold it against other people for liking Trump. And uh, by the way, I am going to bring this up with Pat Doherty and ask him how he deals with the people in his life who are on the other side politically. As for myself, I mean, like a lot of other people, like most people, 
I have friends and family members on the other side. Like I don't live in a bubble or an echo chamber, uh, but I just can't cut these people out of my life. And I know that's where I take a different fork in the road from a lot of the other Trump haters. I mean, some Trump haters, including a few who are listening to this show, I'm sure, like think Trump support is totally unforgivable. And I just don't feel that way. Like I can't turn my back on family and good friends just because they support Trump. Like these are people who have held my infant children in their arms. People I've celebrated holidays with all my life. People I love. And my friends, man. I I do argue with some of them about it, but I'm not going to end cherished friendships over it. These are people I golf with, watch sports with, drink with. People who have steered me out of trouble from time to time in my life. (laughs) And at times, people who have uh, helped get me into trouble. And if, if all of this sounds like bullshit virtue signaling to you, that's fine. I'm just telling you how I feel. And I suppose now everyone is going to be pissed at me. Uh, Trump supporters for saying bad things about Trump later on this podcast. Trump haters for me not telling Trump supporters to fuck off. And of course, everyone I told to draft Jonathan Taylor. Those are probably going to be the maddest people at all of all. So I do think that covers just about everyone, come to think of it. Uh, Bottom line, I know some of you like Trump. I see it on your Twitter profiles at times. Some of my followers uh, wear it on their sleeves. Totally fine with me. Just realize that I'm probably going to say some unflattering things about the orange man. And uh, I know Pat is going to say some unflattering things about him. So if you don't want any part of it, I highly recommend that you either stop listening now or skip past the election talk later in the show. So, all right, trigger warning delivered. Let's talk to Pat Doherty of Joining me now is Mr. Patrick Doherty of Roto World, ranker, blurber, and podcaster extraordinaire. He is without a doubt one of the best writers in the fantasy football media. And for my money, no one in the business does Twitter better than Pat Doherty. You can find him on that medium at RotoPats. Pat, welcome back, sir. Great to talk to you again. Way too kind of an intro. And you could have said no one does Twitter more. Uh, you didn't really have to say anything else. Uh, <laughs> do a lot. Especially just, I get accused of being a volume tweeter. Not really that much, but during live sporting events, I really, that's like my live tweet time to shine is I just can't help but like share every thought that I have on like Carson Wentz or like Monday evening on like Daniel Jones. It's just very hard for me to not tweet every thought that comes into my head during, you know, especially like a funny uh, like Island game. It's very, very hard for me. I've wondered about that with the prolific in-game tweeters. Do you just do that on your phone or do you have a keyboard in front of you? It it depends. You know, I'm usually sitting with like my laptop. Oh, you know, so like I'm sitting at my computer in my office or I'm sitting on my laptop on my couch, but you know, even if I get up to go to the kitchen, you know, a thought could come and uh, it's like all hands on every device on deck, basically, for when it comes to live tweeting during events. There's, you know, no tweet to, is too small and, you know, no device is too cumbersome to come between me and uh, getting the tweet off. <laughs> That's outstanding. I mean, you like give us your A material, though, like and a lot of it, you know, it's not like some of it just falls totally flat. Like it's pretty good stuff considering that you're just doing it off the cuff. So that's very much appreciated. Well, that's good to hear. I would like to think that's the case. And I think that like, unfortunately, I just, uh, I've always told people this, like that I thought and tweets, like even before Twitter existed and it's, you know, there are some good parts to that, but there's also like very obvious drawbacks to that. And unfortunately I just have like permanent tweet brain. Yeah, that's good though. When that medium came along, it was like it was created for you. Perfect. <laughs> kind of, it felt like that to me, uh, just to be honest. So I'm glad that at least one <laughs> other person thinks that. So Pat, we are eight weeks into the 2020 season, and Jonathan Taylor still hasn't popped yet, much to the chagrin of his fantasy managers. I know it's causing waves of angst in some corners of the fantasy community. Uh, he was just outcarried and outplayed by Jordan Wilkins in the Colts' Week 8 win over the Lions. And Naheem Hines has been involved all season, too. I mean, man, this game against Detroit looked like such a good spot for Taylor, and the results were so disappointing. Do you think it's going to happen for him eventually? 
I mean, this was one of the biggest disappointments of the fantasy season, really, for any player. Because so the Colts run by in week seven, and you know, going into the bye week, he had like his biggest touch share. You know, he like absolutely dominated the touches in the Colts backfield in week six. Yeah, it was kind of a weird game because the Colts spent a lot of that game in comeback mode, and it maybe wasn't representative of like what a normal Colts game flow would look like. But you know, normal we would associate that with Naheem Hines. So I, I took it as like even more positive. That Jonathan Taylor was like so involved in week six. And yeah, to just come out and and so then, you know, have that happen going into the bye. I'm like, you know, this would be an obvious adjustment for the Colts to make. Like they're gonna finally like commit all the way to Jonathan Taylor. He had this good game before the bye. We know that this role in theory makes sense for him, you know, behind this offensive line in this offense that I'm not saying like wants to hide Phillip Rivers, but you know, definitely wants to. Uh, you know, be run based and like take as much off Philip Rivers's plate as they can. And so I just thought everything, you know, set up for, because, you know, we've been wish casting kind of with Jonathan Taylor all season. You know, we've been maybe kind of hoping for more to be there than what was there, maybe getting a little too aspirational, but it just seemed like this was going to be the day where everything added up, you know, it gets to run defense too in the lions that isn't maybe horrible anymore. Got off to a really bad start has been better of late. But just like it seemed like the stars were aligning. And yeah, for this to happen under these circumstances is one of the most concerning you know, fantasy outcomes of the year. And I think we have to be genuinely, I don't, you know, this doesn't look like a blip, does it? You know, for Jonathan Taylor to be so disappointing, for Jordan Wilkins, you know, to come in and be plug and play and much more effective against the same defense. This, this felt like maybe, unfortunately, kind of like Jonathan Taylor really taking. Like a like this is not a one week thing. This is a genuine step back, and we have to really adjust our Jonathan Taylor expectations going. Yeah, and I know uh, you guys, Roto World, just had a blurb about Taylor having a minor ankle injury. Would have been nice to know. Seemed to think it was. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But I like I don't know if it's that. I mean, I saw uh, Nick Whalen, who does some film stuff, community, and uh, you know tweets this stuff out. Did a, a pretty interesting cut up of some Taylor. Uh, runs this year and just like a lot of a lot of cutback lanes missed and like run vision was not really something I noticed being a problem for Taylor when I watched him for three years at Wisconsin and uh, you know certainly cutback ability isn't either and he just seems to be like missing it I don't know if he's a little over anxious or just not used to the speed of the NFL game but um, you know and at first I was kind of upset that Reich did not seem to be letting him get into a rhythm and was kind of rotating these three backs around too much, but maybe it it was more like punishment for not really, uh, you know, making the right reads and, and going with the design of the play. I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of curious now. Yeah. It was something I wish. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. Go ahead. It's something I wish that we could blame on the coaching staff, but it's really hard to do that at this point, isn't it? And cause he had dabbled in disappointments, but, this was like yesterday it was just like kind of like the clear and obvious thing for Frank Reich to do. Like he had to do this. And I don't think we can blame the Colts coaching staff, you know, for not letting John cook on Sunday. Yeah, definitely not. Especially when Wilkins played so well. So now Taylor gets the Ravens in week nine. And and when you look at the Colts schedule the rest of the way, it's really soft uh, except for this one game against Baltimore. Do you anticipate him uh, falling pretty hard in your, weekly rankings this week. I know he was in the, the RB1 range for everyone in week eight. Yeah, it's hard to fade anyone that far right now because, you know, you get down to like the RB18 to 24 range, even maybe like the RB14 to 18 range. I'm ranking guys that I feel like in normal years or in ideal years would be like flexes, you know, or, or becoming like clear cut RB2s. So I haven't quite looked at like the overall like week nine outlook so far. Um, my guess is I'll keep him in like the low end RB two range, and I don't know for sure if I'm going to rank Jordan Wilkins ahead of him or not this week. I, it's something I need to ponder. Uh, I mean, it's something that kind of does feel right because, like I said, this just this didn't feel like a, a one Sunday thing. This felt like kind of like the culmination of some struggles when we were kind of hoping it would be the dawn of like better play. And I just wouldn't be surprised if the Colts have different usage going forward, but. I think I'll for sure probably have both in the top 28, um, maybe both in the top 24. I don't know what the landscape looks like, this, like I said. But, uh, yeah, I mean, all I know is that I'm for sure uh, really reevaluate because I had Jonathan Taylor as like a high-end. 
obviously we have to we have to step back at this point and completely reevaluate like what the appropriate weekly baseline is for John. Yeah, and I know I'm going to get questions from followers this week that you know uh, is he a buy low target? And uh, I don't know if he is. You know, even though he's going to come at a discount right now, and and it's hard to say that. I mean, I and I generally hate the buy low sell high analysis to begin with, but like. I don't know if this is a buy low or not. And I hate, I just hate having to say that about someone I was so excited about coming into the season. I know. I hate it too. And I mean, I'm hearing, I mean, I'm not seeing this necessarily myself yet, but I'm, you know, hearing people starting to bust out like the dreaded Trent Richardson uh, oh. comp. And uh, <laughs> hope we're not, I will say, so Jonathan Taylor is good at cutting back, good at cutting back. Like obviously he was elite at that in Wisconsin, but I, I wouldn't say he was like a straight line runner to, to me. I maybe saw some like Metcalfian and hips every once in a while, you know, which is um, DK Metcalf was making a perfectly fine living with Metcalfian and hips where he was still most explosive and like kind of like a straight line. And I kind of just overlooked it because of, you know, how, how truly explosive he was in that straight line. But yeah, just maybe we overestimated uh, how early in his career, that kind of a runner could pay immediate dividend. Just maybe the whole thing was just too aspirational for me. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he certainly did not have like the open field elusiveness that you saw from a DeAndre Swift in college, for sure. So, uh, and speaking of rookie running backs, so we did get a strong performance from J.K. Dobbins yesterday against the Steelers. Uh, 15 carries, 113 yards against the premier run defense in the league. But Gus Edwards played pretty well, too. Uh, how do you feel this backfield is going to shake out in the weeks to come? Do you think Greg Roman and the Ravens are going to be compelled to expand Dobbins' role even after Mark Ingram gets back from this ankle issue? Yeah, so it's weird. So J.K. Dobbins is kind of – Hayden Winks at Road World has been talking about the post-buy rookie bump. You know, you get a, a rookie running back, maybe you know the game will starts to slow down a little bit. Then they get the bye week to kind of totally reset, and they come out, you know, and like they're they're really flying basically after the bye. And that didn't happen with Jonathan Taylor. Uh and it sort of happened with J.K. Dobbins. And it, to all along, like, it was very not sophisticated analysis. But to me, I, I thought the Ravens were holding themselves back with a three-man committee. And just like, you, know, you need to let, you know, someone get into rhythm. You know, maybe that's like a really, like, dinosaur, like, lizard brain, like, old-school thought. But, you know, how can anyone get into rhythm when you've got three guys, you know, checking in and out, in and out? For carry, you know, not even in like being used like that differently either, because this offense, you know, doesn't involve the running backs in the passing game that much, at least from a receiving perspective. And I was like, man, I just feel like they would really benefit from cutting this committee down. And maybe pure coincidence, but you know, the Ravens' backfield is much more effective, uh, much better overall against a tough you know, opponent against the Steelers in Week Eight. And I think maybe, hopefully, that could be a takeaway going forward. I think the decision's out of their hands for Week Nine anyway. I don't think Mark is going to play. Um, but hopefully they can stick with more of a two-man committee. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be J.K. Dobbins like commandeering the backfield all of a sudden because you know, Gus Edwards outcarried him 30-15 to 15 in the three games before the Ravens' week seven bye. Uh, played to a touch standstill yesterday. J.K. Dobbins did considerably outsnap him. J.K. Dobbins is like forcing so many missed tackles, but Gus Edwards just kind of chews up yards and early downs. I think they're going to still kind of want to try to protect J.K. Dobbins. I mean, if this – for as long as this remains a two-man committee, I'm without Mark Ingram. I think both guys will, especially with again how I said how weird the running back landscape is right now. I think both could very easily be top twenty-four runners. Yeah, I feel like in some ways the Dobbins thing kind of could mirror the DeAndre Swift emergence, where uh, sort of getting all the passing down snaps and all he needs is like a little foothold with the early down stuff to you know, become immensely more valuable. And, you know, the DeAndre Swift started getting the stuff close to the goal line helped a lot. So, um, yeah, and it, like, it seems like it certainly could be that way, but, you know, Mark Ingram's inevitable return is kind of the issue. Do you, do you think Ingram's a drop candidate now? I mean, I think you and I would probably both say in a perfect world, you wouldn't drop Mark Ingram. I mean, I'm sorry to speak for you. Maybe you would say that, uh, that you wouldn't drop Mark Ingram, you know, see how this plays out. You know, he's been the lead runner all year for a reason. The coaching staff must like him, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, you know, it's week nine. He's not coming back for week nine, it appears. It's a high ankle sprain. He's going to be less effective after a high ankle sprain. And 
you got to make like tough decisions this time. Only five weeks left in the fantasy regular season. I say, you know, I wouldn't force the move. Like, don't drop him like just because. But you know, if you if you're facing tough dropping decisions, I I think Mark Ingram is, could be a drop that you you're probably not going to look back on with a ton of regret. And I would take I would quote unquote take the risk. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously not a start now, but I guess the upside there is that if anything were to happen, either Dobbins or Edwards, maybe he could have the sort of value that you know both of those guys showed in just a two-man committee with things narrowed down. But um, And I guess I would be reluctant to drop him just because going into the season, I for some reason just thought he would be like the perfect COVID back. Like they weren't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of bought mean. into the, the cliche about like maybe they weren't going to give Dobbins too much without a full training camp, without a preseason. Too. And we were right, I think, too. I mean, uh, it just turns out Mark Ingram just wasn't nearly as good this year. Yeah. I mean, that age cliff, maybe that maybe that's part of it. Um, so, Pat, two months ago, we didn't know if the Patriots were going to have a role for Damian Harris. And now Harris seems to be the only functional component of the Patriots offense. Uh, New England's backfield has been notoriously hard to peg in the past, but do you think Harris can be used with some degree of confidence now? I think I can. I mean, he was truly, I mean, he was like the, the lone bright spot cliche against the bills, uh, which was, you know, speaking of that, I mean, bad for the bills that they almost lost this game uh, because the Patriots didn't have a lot going for them on offense. And see, I mean, three of four games uh, where he's had at least 10 carries, he's averaged almost six yards per carry. Damian Harris, the yards per carry very imperfect, but, for, to be able to have that kind of success, you know, in this kind of offense that is going south, uh, he's passing the eye test, he's passing the box score test, looking like like a very good early down runner. And you know, Rex Burkhead, I just, yeah. So the Rex Burkhead's really his only competition right now. While Sony Michelle is on injured reserve with the quad issue, and I think the Patriots have like clearly diagnosed that Rex Burkhead is someone that can't stay healthy on more than like a role player's workload. So, yeah, I don't think they're going to be dying, itching to expand Rex Burkhead's role. And, yeah, I mean, I think even though it's the Patriots' backfield, I think, like, the obvious takeaway here will be the takeaway in that Damian Harris is providing some desperately, you know, desperately needed good carries. Uh, and he's been making the most of his opportunities. And, like, that Bill Belichick is not going to, like, throw a curveball here. And that what we're seeing is what will continue to happen He'll he'll get even more established in early downs, and at least for now, be in that top twenty-four. I guess when Sony Michelle comes back, we'll have to reevaluate everything. But beginning to look like someone we can regard as a weekly top twenty-four back, right? Yeah, it looks like it. I just, oh, man, I wish he weren't such a classic standard scoring type of back. Like they never throw to him, man. Two targets in four games. Um, yeah, it's it's just like. <laughs> I know it's it's tough and he's well he's caught both of the targets uh so that's a good sign I guess but yeah when they've got these other guys when they've got James White like they're just so very designated about throwing to certain backs and having their kind of uh you know, their sledgehammer guy and and clearly Harris is that but you know in a year like this all these bye weeks now too and all these injuries uh that is worth something so Gun to your head, I guess. Who would you start in half-point PPR in Week 9? Harris against the Jets or Taylor against the Ravens? I am, I'm going to go Harris against the Jets, which you know, I feel like I'm committing heresy uh, you know, against our promised one, Jonathan Taylor. But like, I just think, yeah, I mean, I get, I, for all I know, I'm going to look at the rankings later this afternoon. Monday afternoon will be the first time I look at them and like decide, like, okay, uh, running back is still messed up enough that Jonathan Taylor is a top 20. Yeah, I mean, in that tough match, even with the Ravens kind of struggling on offense right now, with that tough matchup, I, I just don't see it happening for Jonathan Taylor. And even as discombobulated as the Patriots have been, it's very difficult to see. I mean, Damian Harris, I mean, he's got a pretty, he's kind of got like a nice freeway here to like 20 carries against the Jets. Because we know, even with the Patriots the way they play, I mean, they're probably going to dominate game flow, dominate the game. Yeah, you know, we can see a very you know easy, easy path. Not that he'll get there, but... Like uh, it's you're justified in thinking Damon Harris get to 20 carries this week, which I don't think we can expect anywhere near that for Jonathan Taylor. Agreed, agreed. Uh, do you have any sort of read on the Bills backfield with Zach Moss coming on pretty fast, but Devin Singletary still playing reasonably well? I really don't. I mean, it's like stalemate city, isn't it? It's kind of like the ultimate fantasy nightmare because n- neither one of them is playing bad enough to get benched. Neither one of them is playing well enough to pull away. It's 
kind of like the classic starting feeling, maybe Devin Singletary between the twenties and then like Zach Moss on all the actually important touches. And, and, and even with Zach Moss has the important touches, you know, it could still easily just be Josh, Josh Allen. Nearly. Yeah. This is the kind of thing where on a weekly basis, I'm, I'm I think, especially now really be struggling to find like a differentiating factor uh, between Devin Singletary and Zach Moss. And yeah, hopefully I was hoping maybe you uh, had some good advice on that. I really don't. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't. I mean, I kind of like both guys. I'm I'm impressed with the way Moss has come on. And I I think it's possible he sort of becomes the, the one a to Singletary's one B, but you made the good point about, even though we haven't necessarily seen it lately, about Josh Allen calling his own number inside the 10-yard line, um, you know, which can absolutely throttle the value of these guys with those those short yardage touchdowns reduced. So um, I kind of see it the same way. I mean, guys that you could flex or uh, stick in as an RB2 in deeper leagues, but maybe guys you don't like fully trust to do it for you week after week. Uh, so getting away from the player specific analysis for a minute, Pat, I wanted to get your take on a couple of big picture items pertaining to overall fantasy football strategy and uh, just sort of your fer- personal philosophies about playing and analyzing the game. One thing that came to mind this week, for sure, we had a lot of high win games. Uh, do you have a general a take, a philosophy on weather effects, and the degree to which they impact your weekly fantasy rankings and your own personal start-sit decision. Yeah, certainly uh, team weather is overrated. Um, and, you know, We have all week to think about these things. We're so desperate to find tiebreakers that it's like, very easy to kind of like uh, grab onto something like weather. It can feel like, you know, like uh, all of a sudden, it's very easy to see why people like want weather to be like an X factor. But you know, really, unless it's like over 20 mile per hour sustained winds, or, you know, like, or like a genuine blizzard, or not not really a blizzard, more of like a monsoon, I meant. Sorry, unless it's like very high sustained winds over 20 miles per hour, or like monsoon-type rain conditions, I think more often than not, you end up hurting yourself by adjusting the ranks too much, or, you, or like panic getting someone into the lineup. And I will say, so the Browns Raiders kind of met that threshold. It was like 25-mile-per-hour sustained winds. And it's, I didn't have – obviously, I didn't have Baker Mayfield high to begin with, but I dropped Baker a little bit. I had Derek Carr as, like, right on the QB 1-2 borderline, and I dropped him more to, like, QB 16-17. So I did adjust uh, the ranks for the, the wins in Cleveland yesterday, and I guess it was probably the right decision. I it felt like I should have probably had Derek Carr down even lower, especially once early in the game where I saw that viral video of the field goal, you know, going, like, totally haywire in Cleveland – I was like, all right, weather does matter. Uh, but yeah, in general, it, it almost always backfires uh, when, pe- when you freak out about the weather, unless it's sustained high winds or like, you know, like tropical storm type rain. It just, yeah, it, it's something that changes things, but it, it doesn't like a lot of times change like the fantasy outcome. Like you know, a lot of times, even with wind, you know, they just complete more short passes instead of, you know, uh, completing deep pass. So it's just like, it's too hard to game out. I f- almost always... You know, you look back at games that had a pregame weather panic and you look at the box score and there's not much discernible. Right. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that threshold of, of like 20 miles an hour. Like my attention is not even up unless it's something in the 20s, I guess. You know, when I've got people asking me on Twitter whether I'm worried about winds when the forecast is like for 12 to 15 mile an hour winds. I mean, like that's barely, barely a one club wind in golf, man. I mean, like you can't worry about that. And I think people like, I think part of it, Pat, is that people want to manage. They want to manage their teams and they've got these variables and like the weather is something that can sort of make them feel involved as managers, you know, like promoting someone who's got better playing conditions than someone who might be dealing with high winds or whatever. But yeah, most of the time, I I think, you know, as you say, it's kind of a big nothing burger. And every once in a while, we're going to get the game like last year's 49ers-Washington game where, you know, the, the field was a mud pit and no one could do anything. So, uh, so yeah, I, I do agree that most people tend to overestimate that a little. Uh, another big picture tactical consideration I wanted to ask you about, I'm sure you look at other people's rankings from time to time. Uh, relative to other rankers, do you think you're more or less matchup sensitive with your rankings? Uh, and in general, do you find that 
maybe most fantasy managers have a tendency to overplay matchups in their start-sit decisions? Obviously, I take matchups into consideration. I mean, I'm sure we all do, but yeah, I think in general, I would probably say taking into account less, and uh, I find it probably to be one of the most common rankings errors. Uh, just it, it kind of almost the same thing as the weather, you know? Like it's it's much different than the weather because matchups, I think you know, I think definitely do have an effect. But when you're looking at two similar players, you know, you're like so desperate for any edge that uh, it can be. You know, very seductive to lean into. Well, this run defense is allowing 180 yards per game, and part of the problem is, you know, a lot of times the matchup statistics, you know, just like lack any context. You know, so sometimes you look up what you think is like a really good, say, like you think this defense is really good against tight ends. You know, allowing like the fourth fewest tight end fantasy points, but you know, then you pull up their schedule, and like the best tight end they've played through seven games is Lamas. Um, so, so there's all sorts of like. Uh, like traps like that you can fall into. And so, I mean, of course, so like if I think the talent is equal, um, I'll take the matchup into consideration when I'm deciding between two players, but uh, still it always, to me, it always comes down to workload still. Um, again, I, I definitely take matchup into account, but to me, workload is still what I lean on the most. And if we're looking at two similar players, but I think one player still in line for more workload, you know, like a tougher matchup, uh, I'm I'm betting on talent over matchup, and it's just yeah, it's I, people I think over desperate sometimes to find anything to cling to, and uh, yeah, you don't just jam someone in the top ten because they're facing like a run defense that's you know over the past three weeks allowed 100 name or whatever. I mean, maybe you would in that situation, but uh, yeah, it's very easy I think to become a, uh, to to rely on too much. The way too a mealy mouth of an answer, but. No, no, no. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I agree you have to factor it in no matter what. But yes, I think usage is probably the should be it should outrank uh, defensive matchup as a determining factor in most cases. So I agree with that. And uh, I almost said it should trump that as a determining factor. And uh, Pat, I did include a trigger warning in the introduction of this show, letting people know that you and I were going to be talking about the election. Uh, for at least a little bit here. So, um, and you wear your politics on your sleeve and Twitter. You're decidedly not a shrinking violet there. And uh, you are decidedly not a Donald Trump supporter, to put it mildly. Naturally, when you tweet about Trump, like those tweets draw responses from Trump supporters. Do you ever respond to those people? I mean, do, do you even read the responses I do. Uh, for better or worse, I do read them. And I respond, you know, probably not as much as I used to. Uh, so, I mean, I've been tweeting, uh, you know, pro-progressive liberal politics uh, for a very long time, dating back to before Donald Trump. I will say I have seen a bit of a difference. Like, uh, it was easier before Donald Trump to kind of have, like, the fabled, like, quote-unquote, good discussion, like, good exchange of ideas where it has become – Harder and harder. Maybe they're more fanatical. Maybe I'm more fanatical, I guess. I don't, I'm not going to really both sides it. I think one side is uh, clearly right and the other is clearly wrong. But I still get in there and mix it up. I take a great joy, you know, in like kind of coming in as like the calm or reasonable one, quote unquote, because like someone will come in as something just like super hot to me. And, you know, probably often assuming I will not respond. And a lot of times if I come in and like engage it in good faith, like an ad hominem attack and like good faith, they'll be stunned, you know, like, Oh, I didn't expect that. You know, they'll actually like literally. And sometimes a good conversation will come of it. Uh, that, I will say that has been happening less in the past few years. Uh, and I don't I'm know. I'm sure. But yeah. yeah, sometimes, some, sometimes you can disarm those people a little bit. Uh, do you, do you block or mute much? I try to avoid blocking and for very petty reasons where I just don't like to give the satisfaction uh, to people that like they've annoyed me enough that I blocked them. Uh, I used to mute, but I've kind of gotten away from that because when you mute someone, then they still just camp out in your mentions, you know, and like then you're like not seeing it. I have no idea like someone's coming on like ruining my tweets or whatever. So I've kind of given up on muting as like a troll approach. Um, Yeah, I try not to block because to me, is like a born arguer. Like when I block, then I'm like admitting that like they're annoying or bothering me. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I, I a lot of times don't block so much necessarily for like content, 
but sometimes just for, for like volume, like, all right, dude, like I don't need you tweeting at me like literally every single time I tweet. Um, yeah. And I, I will block that. someone that, that just sense. like can't let it go. And I was like responding to like every tweet. Um, but I do not block that many people. I did block someone last week. It was a guy who wasn't even like that offensive, but I got to the point where like, like, all right, I've, I've heard enough. Like, I, I understand your point. Uh, I'm moving on. What about in your personal life? So you live in St. Louis in red state, Missouri. Uh, how do you deal with friends and family members who support Trump? Like, do you argue with them? Do you limit it to just the occasional snarky comments? Or are you telling these people, look, I can pretty much only talk to you about the Cardinals until the election is over? It very, very much depends. Uh, not to get like too much into my family dynamics, but uh, my father is a Donald Trump supporter. Uh, but we have probably uttered the words Donald Trump to each other like maybe four or five times in the past five years. And we used to talk about politics, um, but I don't even remember what it was about. I think it was 2008. We just got in some like enormous fight. And basically since then, it's just been thankfully, un- it's sad. You know, it's very sad to not be able to talk with my politics, but it's just not, it is not worth it. Yeah. Just so that's like a void. There are other people in my family. I won't name names. Uh, but yeah, I do. Uh, I do just with uh, much more. Um, and yeah, I will make the snarky comments. We will get into huge uh, heated fights. Um, my wife's grandma is actually one of them. I will argue with the ticks. Um, yeah, it's a case by case basis. And, you know, there's a, there are people that say, you know, probably especially not to like, uh, like uh, have coast bias, but people like the coast who be like, oh, you know, you should not just like, you shouldn't like, you need to like cut Trump supporters out of your life. Uh, when you live somewhere in Missouri, that's just like literally not possible, you know, unless you want to have like no local friends or family. And uh, unfortunately, yeah, you just kind of have to make those bargains and trade off. Like, it's very sad that I don't talk about politics with my dad, but it's better for both of us overall, you know, to have a good father son relationship than having political conversations that. We- yeah, it's it's uh Sometimes you just got to do that. And uh, it does beat just cutting people out of your life. And I talked about that in the intro a little bit. Like, I just can't go there with my Trump supporting friends and family members, you know. Um, I I know it's hard to narrow it down, Pat. But what things have you found especially galling about the Trump presidency? Yeah, it is very, very hard to narrow it down. (laughs) And uh, I feel like, yeah, I've been uh, I haven't been asked this question in a while. But, uh, you know, so more than anything, you know, it's just like the divide in the income. Not that he's the first person to do that, but, you know, to make it so explicit that he is only the president of his supporters and everyone else is the enemy to not even have like token overtures to the other side. I mean, that's like a new and dangerous thing in American politics. And, you know, it's obviously the road that like, that is on, like leads to nowhere good to just, yeah, to make just not even like, again, like seriously, not even like any token overtures to like being the president of all 50 states is, you know, such a stunning and toxic thing. Just the, then, you know, the unique, just the pursuit of self, like above all else, like conflating every crisis. I mean, they are referendums on him, but viewing everything as like an up and down referendum on him, like as an argument to be one, like turning coronavirus instead of like a national crisis into like this referendum on like, is Donald Trump right or wrong? And like, uh, and then you're like always entrenching at the very beginning. So like, I feel like Donald Trump's like initial, like original sin with coronavirus was like, like uh, being so spooked about the stock market and like February and March and like that leading him to like all these denials about coronavirus. And, you know, and then even once it did, once the inevitable happened and, you know, it tanked the stock market for a while in the spring, like no course correction or, or whatever. He's already, you know, so entrenched on that road that he can't admit defeat. And, you know, he's then just from this, like one, like kind of like a very initial, very short term decision, like set himself on this never ending course of like downplaying, you know, like the biggest crisis, domestic crisis we've had, like at least this century and probably since the second world war, this, this like complete failure basically to view anything like he can't view anything through the lens other than like his own personal cycle. Uh, very bad, in my opinion. Yeah, I have wondered about that. If the if he had known the markets were going to snap back as quickly as they did after the initial impact of the pandemic, 
like if he would have maybe taken a different tack on that and been a little more, but yeah, like you said, there was kind of no going back. And yeah, with, with the pathological narcissism that you are talking about, I mean, I'm going to bring this back to sports for a minute because I'm a shallow person with a limited worldview and I often wind up back at sports, but like when pro athletes speak to the media, they just almost inevitably deflect praise and give credit to teammates and coaches. Uh, and it's always been that way. You know, when, I don't know if you did this, but probably when I was eight years old, pretending to be a baseball player, like I do pretend interviews where I'd say things like, uh, I've just got to give credit to my teammates. Uh, I tried to do my part. It's just like this kind of modesty might be false modesty, but it does serve the very important purpose of making you look like a decent human being and not a complete asshole, you know? And every so often you get these athletes like Terrell Owens or Trevor Bauer who don't do the false modesty thing well. But I mean, those guys are pretty rare. And for Trump to say things like, we've done a tremendous job with COVID-19. I mean, can you imagine athletes or coaches saying something like that? Like imagine after the Super Bowl a few years ago, Pete Carroll, asked about the play call at the one yard line that resulted in the Malcolm Butler interception. Can you imagine him like starting his answer by talking about what a tremendous play call it was? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's an interesting comparison. And yeah, it just, no, it, the, again, it's just, the, that's what it comes. The second thing yeah, is he can't view anything other than like, yeah, everything is like through the, the, the prism of his own personal side. You just, and the, to view every like division is like something to be exploited instead of like bridged it's just such a you know there's such diminishing returns that we all know where like that kind of thing would head of like taken to its logical to say it is a stunningly bad leadership yeah i think so and i mean we just we got it right away too i i always think back to that nate like shove the president of montenegro out of the way to be the first one into the room i mean I mean, you can't say he didn't warn us. I mean, his, his press conference where he literally announced was running for president. He is now one of the most famous uh, saying, you know, Mexico is not sending its best. One of the most famous like incendiary moments in American political history. So uh, he can't say that he pulled the wool over our eyes. Uh, just a disconcerting amount of people. No, I know. That's kind of it. I mean, right from the beginning, it's like we knew this guy was everything your parents taught you not to be. And we elected him anyway. Um, Which also makes so, it very surprising right, you when think- your parents support them. Uh, so anyways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of mm-hmm. does, man. Um, so how do you think the election is going to turn out, both in terms of electoral college results and aftermath? Obviously, I'm just a hobbyist. Um, I'm a very engaged hobbyist. I, mean, I engorge myself on content. In terms of like just the election itself, I mean – has Donald Trump, I mean, he hasn't been like above 43 or 44% in the national poll all year. Uh, is he, even if he, the rare battleground state poll where he does lead, I mean, he's almost never been at 50%. Uh, he's not hitting the thresholds like you need anywhere. Um, there's less third party support this year. There aren't any serious third party candidates this year like there were in 2016. You can debate if we should apply serious to Gary Johnson. There's, there's no one like Gary Johnson making a play. There's no one like Evan McMullen who's making a play in several Western states. Uh, so there's going to be ve- there's going to be less siphoned third party uh, support. You know, one of the most infamous statistics from 2016 was people who disliked both candidates broke very hard for Donald Trump. Uh, that has not been borne out in the polling whatsoever this year. They overwhelmingly support Joe Biden. And, you know, the polls can be wrong uh, in favor, you know, of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. But, you know, the polls can be wrong. Uh, The polls in 2012 uh, somewhat famously underestimated Barack Obama's strength. So it's not like some law of nature, like Donald Trump supporters are underpolled. And I really think if if anything, the polls are probably dramatically underestimating the antipathy towards Donald Trump and I mean, I, I try to think about this too. You know, even if you're a, a very hardcore Donald Trump supporter, like what state, like forget states that are like, uh, like relevant to the electoral college. Like what is a state where Donald Trump will do better this year than he did in 2016? Uh, he'd already maxed out his support in almost all of like the reddest states. Uh, his support has clearly declined and all of the battleground states, maybe, maybe it hasn't declined enough where he'll lose all of them, but 
like in what there's so few states, even like ruby red states, where you can point to like where Donald Trump will have a better obvious performance this year. I just it's hard to find any metric in support of this like royal flush on the river card basically happening. Maybe I'm setting myself up for like the most liberal tears of all time on a Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But if you're really being rational about it, it's hard to find like a single factor in his favor. Yeah. Uh, and I do agree. I mean, I think we have kind of seen it before, not only here in 2016, but like in European countries where the nationalist candidates tend to overperform at the polls and, and sort of, or well, underperform in the pre-election polls and then overperform at the ballot box. And, you know, maybe that was part of it in 2016. And certainly, like you said, a lot of the undecideds breaking in his favor. But I mean, this time there just are so so few undecideds. I mean, who is going to be undecided heading into this election? I know those people still exist. They're still the the Ken Bones out there, but yeah, they exist and they're deciding it still. I mean, they are out there. It is funny when people say they don't exist. Uh, it's hard for people like us who have been decided for five years, but uh, they do exist and they are deciding this election. And if the polling is to be believed, uh, they will be deciding it in favor of Joe. And I, I, I just, I mean, yeah, Donald Trump, he can't seriously, if he can't get above 43 or 44%, I mean, this is going to be like, we haven't really in our lifetime seen like a landslide election, but I mean, there are indicator lights like blinking red. Like that is about, that is about what is about to happen. Really hope that I am uh, right about that uh, because I mean, I have as much 2016 PTSD as anyone else. And if Tuesday night, the early returns are looking, you know, like confusing and like not at all what I was expected. I'm sure the panic pheromones will immediately kick in. Uh, so uh, not trying to project too much confidence, even though I am. Um, but yeah, I think one last thing. So say, uh, you know, it's Trump losing by too big a margin for the election to be contested. If that happens, what do you think happens to the GOP? Do you think they do a controlled burn and remake the party? Or do you think we'll see more of the same thing? Like is the, the 2024 Republican nominee likely to be some sort of relative moderate, like Mitt Romney or Ben Sass, or do you think it's going to be like a Trump style candidate, like a Matt Getz or a Scott Bayo or Ted Nugent or someone? I mean, they somewhat infamously in 2012 said they needed to pursue a more moderate tact and like a famous, the RNC somewhat famously or infamously like a, uh, commissioned an autopsy of like what went wrong in the 2012 election between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And they, you know, they said they needed to become a more inclusive party. Otherwise like the demographics of the country, you know, we're just going to inevitably going to Python the party. And there was, there was nothing they could do without expanding their voter base. And then of course uh, we all know what happened and they found a way to double and triple down on the previous approach and, whether or not that remains the case going forward, I mean, obviously it depends on like the scale of the victory. If if Joe Biden wins like 52, 45 with two to three percent third parties or whatever, like I don't know if that'll be enough. But I mean, if something happens like if Texas goes blue, I mean, if something like that happens, I mean, to me, that would be the most important political development in the first century. That would like shatter the existing, that would shatter the existing Republican coalition. I mean, they would have almost. They already now like have a very narrow track to winning the electoral college. They would have no path without that. And you know, something like that happens if Joe Biden wins like a really surprising state, you know, like Kansas or Alaska. You know, if like a, a sacred cow re- Republican senator loses like a surprising senator, like someone like Lindsey Graham, if they they lose both Georgia Senate races, the scale of the defeat. If the scale of the defeat is like Joe Biden getting fifty six percent of the electoral vote. You know, like a one or two like shocking states falling in the Democratic column, one or two senators that you know didn't know they had a tough race until three or four months ago. If they like, if the scale is overwhelming, maybe the adjustment finally comes. But I still wouldn't be surprised if they decided there was a little more juice, you know, to squeeze out of this orange, and that they need someone a little more sophisticated than Donald Trump. A little like they can still make this approach work just with someone who's not so outwardly, you know, rude and uh, off-putting. 
I'm not holding my breath, basically, uh, unless it's like a massive landslide type of defeat. Yeah, maybe it would take that kind of a, a landslide to really change the the party dynamics. Uh, well, things are certainly going to be interesting and stressful on Tuesday night. And uh, I don't know about you, Pat, but I might need a bottle of something strong next to me to help me through it. Um, all right, Pat, back to fantasy football and the, the time we have left. Antonio Brown rollout week. What are your expect- expectations for AB? Uh, do you think he's going to be an every week starter in fantasy leagues the rest of the way? Yeah, I just, I really don't. And you know, you're a very good ranker. So I was wondering what you were thinking about this. Uh, I mean, Antonio Brown really going to immediately slide in ahead of Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, you know, like in the targets pecking order. I mean, I guess maybe Mike Evans, maybe, maybe Mike Evans is too injured. Maybe the chemistry just isn't good enough with Tom Brady, but I have a hard time, especially, you know, Gronk kind of getting in gear. I have a hard time seeing Antonio Brown being anything other than the, like the third most targeted pass catcher. And just like, what, like, what do we get out of it? And an offense that has been maybe more run heavy than people were expecting. I just don't, after barely playing football in two years, I, I just think a lot of people who rushed out to add Antonio Brown or maybe kind of emptied the fab clip will be very surprised when he's basically like in I know, like the wide receiver, like 44 to 50 range. Um, and I, I get the feeling it kind of be a, a big nothing burger. Uh, he, he is one of the maybe five best receivers in NFL history, so it's quite possible I'm underestimating. I just have a hard time seeing this really being a thing. Yeah, that is my instinct too, but I know they're really smart people uh, on the other side of this. Chris Raybon, who I just had on the podcast, who thinks Antonio Brown is going to be impactful right away. So, um, you know, just partly because he thinks like, Tom Brady wants it to happen. He definitely does. Brady. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. If you're bringing in, uh, who was it, Tony uh, Tony Robbins? To yes, Tony the, Robbins. Uh, yes, yes. He was the motivational speaker. <laughs> I will say to, yeah, not, to get but, AB's head right. Yeah, I don't know why to interrupt you for no reason, but like, so Tom Brady, like, uh, he he'll do that kind of thing. Like, he'll really stump for Antonio Brown. We need Antonio Brown on this team, but. Tom Brady then, like, once you're on the field, has never been the kind of quarterback to just, like, force something, you know. So he's not going to come out there and just, like, have on Antonio Brown blinders. Uh, so Tom Brady uh, made it very clear he wanted Antonio Brown on the team. But I don't think Tom Brady's the kind of quarterback who's going to go out then and just, like, throw to Antonio Brown 10 to 12 times, like, just because. So, uh, yeah, he'll have to earn it on the field with Tom That's true. I mean, he does – and really always has been a guy who lets the coverage dictate where he goes with the ball for the most part. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. And maybe that sort of feeds into our more modest expectations for Antonio Brown. All right. This is uh, more of a general question again, but is there like a single usage tendency by a coaching staff that you find to be just especially tilting like Taysom Hill QB snaps, for example, anything that just drives you totally bonkers? It was getting to that point with uh, Chase Edmonds and Kenyon Drake. And don't like that it came to an injury to kind of quote-unquote solve that one, but I think maybe that one's solved for now. Uh, I was Before Miles Sanders got hurt, I was like, why is Miles Sanders not being used? He was being used for a while. Then like the two weeks for his injury, I was like, why aren't the Eagles using Miles Sanders more? Um, but really, I think Adrian Peterson, the one you already said, is the one because – I feel like it's like kind of like sabotage the Lions entire offense and it was done so last minute, you know, it seemed like a very late summer adjustment for the Lions and yeah, you know, not to totally like slag and Adrian Peterson. Cause I think Adrian Peterson still does belong in an NFL roster. Like I kind of like, unlike the case with Frank Gore, I don't think like an Adrian Peterson carry is necessarily like a totally wasted carry, but for this offense, like I think it kind of is because DeAndre Swift, I, th- I think, is kind of who we thought he was. Like He is crying out for more work. And then just this run approach they've had, it seems that it just totally neutered the high-flying, like deep-passing game. They had the first eight games the last season before Matthew Stafford got hurt. It's just been like a, a totally different offense. And I feel like maybe it's unfair to blame it all on Adrian Peterson. Maybe something with Matthew Stafford, maybe his back injury still lingering, that they had to change the offense, and that's why they signed Adrian Peterson. But – this seems like a very late camp ad lib from the Lions that totally changed their offense, and I don't think for the 
Yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of with you on there, and I know they did want to make it more of a like they wanted to have a running game, and they wanted their passing to be more of the vertical downfield variety. So like conservative, but with big strike passing. And, uh, you know, maybe they felt like they had to get Peterson in to sort of bolster that sort of rushing volume, but it just seems like they, I don't know, kneecapped themselves a little by not giving Deandre Swift a chance on the early downs for the first five weeks or whatever it was of the season until they came back from their bye. So, um, J.J. Zacharyson had an interesting tweet on Monday. He noted that Lamar Jackson was a top 15 fantasy score at quarterback uh, in 14 out of 15 regular season games last year. So basically he was doing his part every week. So far this year, Lamar has been a top 15 score in just three of seven games. All right, I know it's really early for this kind of question, Pat, but I'll ask you to guesstimate for me anyway. Where about do you think we will be ranking Lamar Jackson in redraft for 2021? I really, it feels like we're just always, no matter what, too certain with Lamar Jackson. I guess there was actually a lot of, he was pretty hotly contested last year, I guess, actually. But, you know, there were some people after 2018 that were just ready to declare that Lamar Jackson would never be a good enough passer to have success at the NFL level. Uh, There were a lot of smart people, a lot, a lot of smart people that didn't agree with that. I couldn't decide how I felt about it because he definitely appeared like a limited passer uh, to me as a rookie. But then, you know, this year, then immediately we all, all of us viewing him as like too big to fail uh, was maybe too certain because there are always still kind of like some indicators like lurking beneath the surface that maybe, you know, he wasn't quite as arrived as a passer as we had thought. And yeah, it's stunning to me, but I mean, we're getting more of like the 2018 version this year. I mean, Yesterday's 208 yards passing were his most since week one. And this was in a performance that was horrible. And uh, it's just been, yeah. And like missing, uh, he just can't even, he's not anywhere even close to his 2019 baseline. You know, he's not, he's missing so many of these big plays down the field. Cause like Mark Andrews and Marquise Brown will still be running wide open several times a game, it feels like. And he's just not hitting those. So it's not like, the design of the Ravens offense is like fundamentally collapsed. He's just not executing it nearly as well as he did last year. And you know, now losing his left tackle for the rest of the season. Uh, it's hard to see where, yeah, but I will say, I mean, anytime when you got, you know, one of the, maybe already the greatest rushing quarterback in NFL history, it's, I think he'll begin to rebound this year. I mean, the degree of which, you know, can be hotly debated, but anytime there's a quarterback who runs like this, it's hard to see how he'll be like outside of the top eight at quarterback for 2021. Even if he kind of muddles along at this rate, I feel like the running will keep him in like the top eight or 10 for fantasy. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a very telling second half of the season. Agreed. Agreed. I, I completely agree with that stance on it. And uh, you know, what can you do with a quarterback who's, you know, missing a wide open Marquise Brown and overthrowing him by 15 feet. Um <laughs> So even with A.J. Brown healthy, Corey Davis has 10 targets in each of his last two games, uh, 14 catches, 10, uh, wait, 14 catches and two touchdowns over that span. And in the five games he's played this year, he's had three TDs and two 100-yard games. Are you buying this late-blooming Corey Davis? Sorry, I mean, maybe we've just gotten too used to the idea that all good receivers are immediately good, you know, because... It seems like a lot of the best receivers have really hit the ground running lately, but um, uh, maybe that maybe is a Devontae Parker. It just doesn't happen overnight for some of these guys. Uh, like you said, so three of five games this year, he's been right at 70 yards. Um, four of five games, he's caught at least four passes. Um, maybe some of that has to do with Adam Humphreys you know, being on the COVID list and then Adam Humphreys suffering a concussion yesterday. Maybe that has just like conspired to create some easier targets for Corey Davis, but yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be – you can just – all you have to do is look to Devontae Parker to find a former top 10 receiver – or was I'm, I think Devontae Parker was top – like all the talent in the world and just maybe it takes a little longer than we would like for it to come together. But, you know, extremely talented, uh, the, the size you want in an NFL receiver. And, yeah, I mean, I think we're at least seeing – I mean, if you're doing this in your fourth year, you're going to at least be a useful player. Uh, maybe he'll never get up back on, like, the star trajectory, but – we're at least seeing, I think, Corey Davis stabilizing and establishing himself as a useful player. Because, 
even if this has been related to Adam Humphreys, you know, this hasn't felt like these are like wasted targets for the Titans or whatever. Like he's stepping into the role they've needed and he's executing it. It doesn't seem like he's like falling into this basically. Like it seems kind of for real. So uh, it's not really an answer, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, no, no. I, yeah. A talented player. I get stabilizing it, I, a fourth year. In- yeah. And uh, we had always seen the flashes, you know, that, that playoff game against new England uh, three seasons ago. Um there were always just like the traces of talent you could see even when he wasn't really popping. And uh, yeah, it is, it is kind of nice to see him doing it now and doing it with AJ Brown back and showing he's not going to be just completely overshadowed by the great receiver. Uh, Last thing, Pat, what do you think the quarterback change means for the supporting cast in Jacksonville? So with either, uh, and I guess they still haven't named the starter for week nine, it's either going to be Jake Luton or, Good God, Mike Glennon at quarterback. Uh, <laughs> does does James Robinson's value take a big hit? And uh, which of DJ Chark, LaVisca Chenault, and Keelan Cole do you think might still be startable? So unless Jake Luton is like full Danucci, I mean, they got to see what they have there. Uh, what could possibly be the point? Uh, even if like they're afraid Jake Luton, Luton, however you pronounce his name, it's going to be an abject disaster. I mean, we know that Mike Lennon is an abject disaster, and like this season is already lost. So, yeah, you know, thoughts and prayers that it is Jake Luton uh, under center, and I mean James James Robinson. I mean, things just kind of keep working out for him this year. You know, like he's got the three down. I mean, Chris Thompson is back now, but Chris Thompson, his previous chemistry with Jay Gruden does not seem to have carried over. It seems like even if Chris Thompson's out there playing. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a mirage, but it seems like James Robinson has established like a weekly receptions floor and like won't just get killed by the Jags' inevitable negative game flow. And, you know, they're to a point where the offense, the passing attack could be so bad, so questionable that they could become one of these bad teams, kind of like the 2019 Bengals or like the Chip Kelly 49ers that even in negative game script is just going to stick with them and keep running. So I'm actually not too worried about James Robinson falling off the map. Uh, a receiver, I mean, in these situations, I think you just got to bet on the best player. And I think we still think it's DJ Shark. Um, kind of a weird year. Just hasn't been able to get 100% healthy. But, you know, ha- hopefully the bye week has really helped him out. I would still rather bet on DJ Shark than, you know, like the rookie offensive weapon and LaVisca Chenault, who can maybe have a very bright NFL future. We've definitely seen the flashes. But, you know, after not having the offseason, after not having the quarterback chaos, after – not having like, a, or after having the quarterback chaos, not having a set role, I just I don't know if he's a good player to bet on right now. And Keelan Cole, I mean, could be a good like Keelan Cole would be like a great role player, like a team like the Chiefs or something. And he has like the big games occasionally in Jacksonville, but I, I don't think Keelan Cole is better than DJ Shark at this point. I would just in these times of uncertainty, I think it's always best to just bet on the best player, and I'm pretty sure it's still. Yeah, that's all fair. And I think we do kind of have to take a cautious approach, at least with the the secondary guys, Chenault and, and Cole. Uh, but who knows? You know, maybe Luton is like, maybe the Jaguars are sort of looking at what's going on with Justin Herbert and uh, saying, hey, we've, we've got a prospect of our own who kind of has some warts. I mean, obviously not too many warts on Herbert since he was a top 10 pick and, and Luton certainly wasn't that. But uh you know, maybe they're thinking it could potentially pan out for them, too. Why so, not us? We shall it's, see. It's funny because they're exactly. getting greedy. I mean, they should have already been happy hitting on Gardner Minshew. Uh, not that Gardner Minshew is like a franchise quarterback, but Gardner Minshew is already like a free money draft pick, like a sixth round pick who was like established himself as like a, a Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrickian, like bridge type quarterback. Um, I'd say they're just getting greedy. It's like two years in a row. They expect to have another Minshew moment. Uh, yeah, and, and hoping this one is a true franchise guy. It's probably a lot to ask for. Uh, Patrick Doherty, always a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Uh, so have you settled on a choice of alcohol for election night, or are you just going to try to get through it sober? I usually go through these things, big sporting events, and especially election nights, uh, stone cold sober. But I have, I shouldn't review, if a certain, not if Biden wins, but of a certain sub- if a certain state goes a certain way, I have agreed to do a Jaeger bomb with someone. And uh, I get the feeling <laughs> that even if that doesn't happen, we'll find another excuse to do a Jaeger bomb 
um, which I have not done since I was in college. This is a college friend and we used to do Jaeger bombs and it somehow came up on a text thread. And this would be over Zoom, of course. Uh, somehow came up on a text thread the other day that we should do Yappens. So I get the feeling that no matter what, I'll be doing well, that is uh, that is definitely an ambitious yes. form of alcohol for that. Yes. I mean, yes, it just it gives is. me a fuzzy tongue thinking about drinking Jägermeister. All yeah, right. I mean, I'm 34. Uh, folks, I don't think I've had one since I was 21 or 22. Uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> folks, that's Pat Doherty. You can find all of his outstanding work at rotoworld.com, and you can find him on Twitter at rotopath. Thanks again, Pat. Thank you. Truly my pleasure. Uh, anytime. That is going to do it for the show. My thanks once again to this week's guest, Pat Doherty of Roto World. Find him on Twitter at RotoPats. The outstanding producer of Fits on Fantasy is my friend, Calm Kelly. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. Special thanks to my colleague, Melissa Jacobs of TheFootballGirl.com. Find her on Twitter at TheFootballGirl. Thanks to International Jet Set for the music. And my thanks to all of you for spending this hour with me. I very much appreciate your listenership and your support. And I hope you'll be back with me again next week when I'll be joined by another terrific guest. All right, everyone. Good luck with Election Day. And I'll see you on the other side. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you?